Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Another great show, Michelle. We'll speak with Garrett uh, Rappenhagen. We're going to speak with Paul Wright and Tina Desiree Burke. We're going to speak with Medea Benjamin. We will talk about Ukraine, criminal justice reform, Afghanistan, New York, and a whole bunch of other issues. But first, there are some stories in the news that I wanted to uh, to raise. I'm going to jumble up the order of this just because one of these stories is is breaking. Mm-hmm. There was a, a mass shooting today inside the New York City subway system in Brooklyn. Uh, the fire uh, department... Uh, initially said that um, there were five people shot and 13 wounded. There may have been unexploded ordnance or bombs that turned out to not be true. Uh, But now they're saying uh, seven people were shot, none fatally, thank God, 13 people wounded. They're saying that a guy threw a smoke bomb onto the train when the doors opened and then just opened fire on people in the train randomly. The doors closed, the train left for the next station, and at the next station, it stopped, and they finally were able to provide uh, medical assistance. It's it's a disaster. Um, Nobody knows what this is yet. Is it a terrorist attack? Is it a nut? They're saying that the guy was was dressed either in a construction uh, uniform or an MTA uniform, Metropolitan Transit Authority. he was wearing a reflective vest. He was wearing a gas mask, so his face was obscured. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are cameras literally everywhere in New York City. And uh, the police said just minutes before we started the show that they're confident they're going to find this guy. Yeah, just as we walked in, they were they were getting ready to start a press conference on it. So, yeah, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, obviously terrible. I don't know what Crazy. else there is to... To say about it, I, I wonder. It will be interesting to find out what his motivations were, if there mm-hmm. if there really were any. That is right. Um, March inflation hit a forty one year high of eight point five percent, according to the Department of Commerce this morning. Some of that, but not all of it, can be attributed to a surge in fuel prices uh, due to the Ukraine war. But stripping out food and fuel, prices still went up six and a half percent. Just a lot. That's a lot. Yes. Yeah. And with that said, economists both inside and out of government said that this is likely the peak of inflation and that it'll begin abating in the next two or three months. Gas prices apparently peaked on March 11th. Food prices are expected to drop as we approach summer. And uh, what they call core inflation, which is the cost of goods and services minus food and energy, was three-tenths of one percent. So that uh, apparently that is a good enough sign that they think the the worst is is behind us. Yeah, I, hope I mean, that's how, much, true. how much they drop over the summer, I think, is going to be important. They, Of course, this is, you know, some of the big news uh, this morning on all the daily news program podcasts and NPR was doing an interview, you know, saying like the people hurt, most hurt by inflation are people who don't have a lot of extra money. Yeah. And again, it just makes you think. Wouldn't be such a big problem if you didn't have such a such a big cohort of the American population living hand to mouth. Yeah, yeah, paycheck exactly. to paycheck without any savings. It's, exactly it's a ridiculous right. situation anyway. But, you know, yeah, 
if, if, if your monthly budget fluctuating by a couple hundred dollars every month isn't such a big deal, then the, the political fallout is perhaps not so intense. But no, God forbid, God forbid that people have, you know, that kind of economic uh, landing pad or, or right. personal economic safety, because then, you know, it's not as easy to uh, to discipline them. You know, a lot of us are, are in the same kind of boat where we, you know, on, on the surface of things, we live perfectly fine, uh, normal lives. But God forbid, if there's a disaster, whether it's in healthcare or your car goes belly up or, you know, something, just one one bump in life and uh, and you just can't make up the money. Especially if that, I mean, a bump, you know, if it's something like a, a, a surgery that comes upon you exactly. uh, unawares, right? Even if you have insurance, a lot of people don't have the kind of money on hand to pay their entire deductible necessarily. That's right. And then, yeah, if you don't have, it's one thing if you're an individual who doesn't have that kind of scratch, right? But it's another if you can't go to your parents for a loan or right. your grandparents for a loan, if your entire family, uh, perhaps because of their race, has been sort of excluded from the traditional paths to accumulating wealth, then you don't have any of that sort of generational backup behind you and you put your whole family in jeopardy. And again, mm -hmm. just simply not a situation that should exist in a country as wealthy as this, uh, where we are generating profits as, as enormous as they are for the health insurance industry, for health insurance companies, uh, for, you know, the Elon Musks and, and uh, Jeff Bezos's of the world. Yes. It just sh shouldn't happen. Absolutely right. Another bit of odd news this morning is that Brian Benjamin, the lieutenant governor of New York, was arrested this morning and charged with multiple federal felonies of conspiring to commit bribery by funneling fraudulent donations to previous campaigns. What this is, is um, he he agreed to help a con well, he's alleged to have agreed to, to help a construction company owner in New York City if the owner would then make illegal contributions to his campaign to run for comptroller of New York City, something that he did a couple You're of years telling ago. telling me real estate development and construction are, are corrupt Imagine. industry? Wow. Imagine. Next thing you know, they're going to accuse it of being associated with organized crime. Next thing you know, politicians are going to be involved. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, that would be interesting. You know, I'd like the, to see what happens. The, the funny thing to me here is uh, his attorney said this morning, that he has been cooperating with the investigation since the very beginning. Well, number one, that's either not true. Or number two, if he is, he's the biggest idiot I've ever heard of in my life. Because you're going to help the cops put you in prison? Yeah, yeah, Are you yeah. crazy? So, we're going to watch this play out. Mm -hmm. This uh, poses a problem for Governor Hochul. Because she personally chose him to be <laughs> lieutenant governor when she became governor Great. upon the resignation of Andrew Cuomo. But we have, of course, seen uh, Hochul uh, involved in sort of a mafia style uh, shakedowns, as, as we talked yeah. about last week with yeah. the Seneca, the Seneca right. nation freezing their bank accounts. That's right. Yeah. So maybe it's not maybe it's not so surprising. New York. I'm glad I don't live in New York. Yeah. OK. The United States and India are in something of a kerfuffle over Indian purchases of Russian oil and gas. India and Russia have had close relations for a century. Mm -hmm. And Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi said that the country will continue to purchase its fuel from Russia. President Biden on Monday urged him not to do that, saying that closer economic ties, ties with Russia were not in India's interests. Well, the Times of India says today that Modi politely asked Biden to back off 
And he reiterated that India's purchases of Russian oil and gas are small, that relations between the two countries are longstanding, and that Biden needs to mind his own business. And that's where they left it. And again, you know, this is an example of putting a bunch of public pressure on India to uh, drop its relatively small purchases of, of Russian gas compared to Europe is sort of par for the course, right? Try to make other countries suffer yeah. economic pain that, that we don't want to. Right, right? because somehow it's in when our Europe interest. Does it, it's not a moral violation, whatever. But, you know, if we can put some pressure on other countries that don't have quite as much economic yes. power as we do, then that's what we'll do. You know, with, with a billion plus people and an enormous urge, uh, emerging rather economy, it's going to be a little tougher to bully the Indians into doing what we want. Um, my the guess is they're not going to. The U.S. To. also has to think about China in, yeah, in this relationship, that's right. right? Because it's been, I think it's been very useful for the United States to have India and China in a, in a sort of fraught yes. uh, relationship. India and China traditionally have not gotten along, um, in part because China's relationship with Pakistan is so close and always has been so close. But the Russians and the Indians have always had terrific diplomatic relations and very close trade and military relations. So, you know, this is it's going to take a lot more than just Joe Biden saying, hey, cut it out yeah. for them for them to change this century long relationship. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't know that I would predict that. No, no, I agree. Uh, here's a good one. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was fined today for breaking UK lockdown rules. He's the first British prime minister in living memory, perhaps in all of history to be fined for breaking the law. Um, I'm sure you'll recall, uh, I recall at least, uh, the maskless birthday party that was thrown for him at number 10 Downing Street. That's what this is about. Yeah, yeah. Everybody else in the country gets fined if they're not wearing a mask, but then he throws a birthday party for himself and he's not wearing a mask. Yeah, yeah. Well, it caught up with him. Remember when there was some possibility that this was maybe going to bring down his government? Remember those days when the COVID scandal in the UK was really one of the biggest news stories? And now we spent a lot of time talking about it. Yeah, well, it seemed like it might, you know, yeah. usher in a change of a change of government or at least the ouster of uh, Boris Johnson. Yeah. But nope. The guy's Teflon. No, he's still there to talk about putting all options on the table with mm-hmm. regard to Ukraine and the rest. Yeah. Yep. He sure is. Finally, something that, you know, I, I guess I could have saved for, for Friday, but it was just so interesting to me that I, I couldn't. Politico is reporting today that Senator Mitt Romney, the Utah Republican, may not seek re-election. Romney was the first senator to vote to convict a member of his own party in an impeachment trial since 1868. He was also one of only three Republicans to vote last week in favor of Ketanji Brown-Jackson for her elevation to the Supreme Court. There are two popular Republicans who have already said that they would run against Romney at the Republican State Convention. Uh, And observers think that he can't survive a Republican primary. Here's the interesting thing about the way the Republicans do it in uh, in Utah. They have just lying down, right? Pardon? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. They have these weird conventions. So if you want to run for something, you just show up at the convention and you raise your hand. You say, I'm I want to run for Senate. And so here's Mitt Romney. He's running for the Senate. And now you just said you want to run for the Senate. Now, the people who normally go to these conventions are the activists. They're the ones who are the hardcore party members. They tend to be far, far more conservative than the average voter. And so what they'll do, and they did this with with um, 
a former senator, and his name escapes me right now, uh, a tall, thin guy that was defeated by Mike Lee. Anyway, they'll just throw you out if they just decide that day in that one meeting that they like the more conservative guy. They'll just throw you out. And then what you can do is if you've been thrown out and you don't get the nomination, you can then launch a petition where you actually have to go door to door and get signatures to force a primary. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there is no primary and you're just SOL. So Romney knows that this is where he's headed. The, the activists hate him. They call him a rhino. They say he's not loyal to Trump, which he's not. He's never liked Donald Trump. And uh, he's 75 years old. He just built an $18 million oceanfront home in Del Mar, California. And um, I think he's just had enough. Yeah. I think enough. he just wants to retire and spend time with his family. And he's, he's just sick of this. So you- we'll see. Uh, I, did you see that Joe Biden is in Iowa today? Already? He's in, no, he's there too. I believe it's in, he's in Iowa. He's there too. Remember we talked about the EPA about fuel? Yeah, right. rolling back some of its restrictions on yes, ethanol on and ethanol gasoline the over summer. the summer. So right. that's going to be, he's apparently going out there to announce that, that they're, they're going to change those rules to allow more ethanol to be mixed in. Uh, which is supposed to be, you know, obviously it's intended to make people think this is action being taken to to yeah. drop clean fuel air. prices. Right. And f- this will be for fuel prices. Yeah. Right? No, it's not for clean air. No, no, no. It's, it's the opposite yeah, of exactly. clean air. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I don't I don't think that anyone really I, I mean, I don't know, but I, I would be surprised if this is really what's going to help uh, drive down costs. Agreed. And, uh, you know, there certainly are going to be some short term environmental costs and that's what he's out there doing. That's the action that this White House is going to take. Also, did, you see, did you see those reports this morning about uh, the Abraham Lincoln? This, yeah. uh, this Abraham is it the the Abraham Lincoln strike, strike force, force? Right. That is either is off the Korean Peninsula. Is it in the uh, the Sea of Japan? Is it in international waters? Where exactly is it? Seems to be uh, sort of up in the air. Uh, but it's out there. Uh, some reports say that it's out there for. Um, Drills with the Japanese Navy. Yeah, this is this is supposed to be intimidating to the DPRK. Yeah. You know, we, we haven't said anything about uh, these missile launches other than, oh, it may have been fake. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe this wasn't a hypersonic intercontinental ballistic missile. After all, it was just a, f- a head fake yeah. for us. So um, we sent this. Uh, now we have this carrier group. group for the first time in five years, I guess. That's right. Uh, it, in the waters between South Korea and Japan. So we'll indeed we'll be able to talk a little bit more about uh, the Asia Pacific tomorrow with the guests that we've got lined up. But that seems, you know, I always think those I think those moves are interesting. I do, too. We should also I know we're running short on time, but we've got to we've got to mention COVID uh, in in Washington, Mm D.C. You know, the gridiron dinner was last week. Mm -hmm. And so far, 58 people and these are all the big muckety mucks of Washington. Mm -hmm. 58 of them have come down with COVID Mm -hmm. who attended that gridiron dinner. We've got the secretary of commerce, the speaker of the house, the secretary of transportation, the mayor of Washington. Everybody's coming down with COVID. Yeah, we uh, citywide. It looks like there's been a 76 percent increase in cases from the average of two weeks ago. But the number of hospitalized people continues to fall. Deaths continue to stay the same. So it kind of does look like 
uh, this new variant. Yeah, it is infecting people and it is infecting people who have been vaccinated, but it doesn't seem so far to be making much of a, a difference when it comes to serious illness or death. Good. So that's the good news. And the White House COVID czar today said uh, she's not she's not concerned, not overly concerned about the Omicron subvariant. OK, so, good. I guess we don't have not you sure. Know, I guess we don't have to be either. And maybe we really have entered that period where it's endemic. It's going to be like the flu. It's going to be treated like the flu. And we're just going to have to, you know, the only difference would be, hands. and again, like I'm not, I'm not uh, an expert on on long COVID or long term effects of COVID or any of the rest. And I do think, you know, I think there were some people who were initially, you know, s- skeptical as to how much we could really say about something that we didn't know very well, right? Um, but I, I will say, like it's it's one thing if the initial disease becomes like the flu and your sort of experience of unpleasantness is like the flu, but the flu doesn't tend to cause in some percentage of people, perhaps long-term organ damage or diabetes, which again is some initial that's right. studies might suggest. I don't know what will turn out to be actually true, but you know, yeah, that's good. That's great if we can all go back to life as normal, but I, uh, you know, rolling the dice with the flu doesn't seem to me exactly the same as rolling the dice with COVID if this reporting bears out. Yes, but I would agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to remind our listeners, too, that in addition to Rumble, we are uh, with you Monday through Friday from 12 to 2 on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. You can still hear us at SputnikNews.com. Go to the bottom of the screen on the left-hand side. We're Political Misfits. Just click on the the icon there. We're also on Rumble.com slash Political Misfits. So we're live in D.C. Stay with us. We'll come right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou getting into some more of the news out of Ukraine and, uh, you know, peripheral issues like uh, the U.S.'s renewed interest and faith in the International Criminal Court. Joining us for these discussions is Garrett Reppenhagen. He's Director of Veterans for Peace. Garrett, thanks for being here. Hey, y'all. It's a pleasure again. So, of course, we have more um, really terrible accusations coming out of the conflict in Ukraine Uh, yesterday and this morning. It was that Russian soldiers have used chemical weapons in Mariupol and that Russian forces are using mobile crematoria to dispose of bodies to hide war crimes. These accusations so far come from Ukrainian officials and in the case of the chemical weapons allegation from Azov Battalion, uh, the Ukrainian Central government has said it will investigate. The U.S. and U.K. governments have said the same thing. No one has confirmed either of these allegations. And obviously, none of us here today are in a position to confirm them or deny them. Uh, but I wonder if you could tell us anything about the, the process of, of confirming something like this and, and how easily that could be done in an active war zone or how long you think we might wait to, to learn what is actually happening in Ukraine. Yeah, well, I mean, the situation in Ukraine is is still very fluid. There are retreating, you know, Russian forces or repositioning Russian forces that's allowing areas to be investigated. There's a forensics team there internationally composed to to start doing some investigations. 
obviously, you know, get into Mariupol and uh, other areas in, in Ukraine are not really possible right now and not safe for folks like that to do investigations. But there are places that they can do investigations and um, they'll probably find out that some of this is, you know, is legitimate and, and war crimes, pinning that on leadership uh, in, in Russia, saying that this is an active strategy or, or condoned by leadership is going to be more difficult. But um, I think I think eventually the uh, the investigations will will, you know, will be able to be under undergone and success. I do think there there is a little bit less. I think you see a little bit more restraint on the part of some news organizations right now than you did in the past when it comes to uh, reporting this kind of stuff as fact before it's confirmed. Uh, the the other conversation I, I wanted to start is is about this possible use of phosphorus munitions and landmines in Ukraine. Um, there's been a lot of talk of uh, the use of landmines by both sides in the conflict with uh, U.S. I believe it was Mark Milley earlier this week, uh, praising Ukraine for its use of landmines uh, while criticizing Russia for its use of landmines. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could talk about those weapons and, uh, you know, what what we may have seen of them in Ukraine so far and some of the history of their use. Well, yeah, I mean, they're they're indiscriminate killers. And that's that's why, you know, most folks are banning them. You know, my first job getting out of the military as a sniper, I was working in Washington, D.C., um, under, uh, basically, uh, under the umbrella organization that, uh, helped produce the campaign to ban, uh, landmines, the international campaign to ban landmines. In fact, I worked underneath the Nobel prize when I, when I first started there. Um, so I'm from familiar with, uh, the effects of landmines and the, and the, the difficulty of removing them, uh, long after conflicts are done. We have a chapter in, in Vietnam that, uh, assists the, the Vietnam village in, uh, landmine removal. And they're still taking people's arms and legs and lives uh, to this day all over the world, wherever there's been a conflict. So these weapons, these weapon systems stay around for a long time. And, you know, they they hurt innocent people. Uh, so they, you know, I, it's shocking to see a U.S. military member in such leadership, you know, praising any any use of landmines. Um, you know, these are weapons that should be banned. You know, I'm I'm pretty certain that we used white phosphorus in Iraq and Fallujah. There's artillery magazines that have quoted artillery men talking about shake and bake missions where we launched conventional weapons and followed them up with white phosphorus. That's basically a, a burning chemical, um, you know, and, and it just it just wouldn't surprise me that these weapons are being used now. The way this conflict has has gone on, the the desperation on both sides, the the critical situation that service members are in in Russia and uh, obviously the the horrible conditions that uh, Ukraines are in uh, Ukrainians are in um, you know these weapons probably are are going to get used more and more so um, we'll see it is just sort of a shame that some of the countries that you know the countries that are uh, most vocal in their horror at their use in Ukraine don't really have an ethical moral leg to stand on when it comes to these discussions, right? It would be nice to see perhaps the voices of Vietnamese people or uh, Lao people or people in Gaza uh, centered in these conversations about the the use of these weapons. Well, hell, I mean, United States corporations still make and sell these weapons all around the world. So, you know, we can condone and and, you know, say that they're bad all we want while we're still making a profit on them. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's it certainly there's there's all sorts of uh, hypocrisies in this. Yeah, 
Yeah. And it just it's a it's a frustrating conversation to have because at every, at every turn, you know, the U.S. condemns something that has been doing in the past. And which is, again, not to say that two wrongs, two wrongs somehow make a right or that, you know, we, we should other countries uh, shouldn't be allowed to do things that we should be or, or vice versa. It's just such a it just, you know, it adds to this bizarre air of like uh, a history, I guess, and hypocrisy when it comes to the discussion of this conflict. And, you know, that, of course, imbues the next topic I wanted to raise with you, which is this apparent internal debate underway in the Biden administration over how to support an investigation by The Hague into Russian war crimes without creating a precedent for investigating Americans for similar crimes. Uh, according to The New York Times uh, mostly anonymous sources, the Biden team would really like to see Putin and others in his military chain of command held to account. Uh, I mean, as you say, sort of proving the use of something is one thing, proving its direction from on high is a different matter. Uh, but that is the ultimate goal here. But the U.S. is very limited by its own law in how much support it can provide to that court. Um, the legal limits include a 1999 law that prevents Congress from spending any money at all to support the ICC or from donating things like like used computers or whatever. Uh, a 2002 law prohibits the U.S. from giving the court other kinds of support like sharing intelligence, training staff or lending it personnel, which all the stuff that we like to do for Saudi Arabia and its war on Yemen. Uh, and, and a new 2001 or sorry, 2010 memo that the Times dug up uh, interpreting these two laws concludes that the U.S. can cannot offer general institutional support, but it can jump in to help in particular cases, which is pretty convenient. The Pentagon, unsurprisingly here, I think, is one of the biggest uh, obstacles. And they are saying, look, if we start tinkering with our laws and with our approach here, we open ourselves up to investigation. We open Israel up to investigation. Uh, and, and so I, I wonder, it seems like nonsense. You, you, you have this... Um, a senior national security lawyer in the Bush administration and uh, Chris Dodd, a former Democratic senator, arguing last week, I believe in The Washington Post, uh, that U.S. support for an ICC investigation of Russian war crimes would not constitute a double standard or be inconsistent with U.S. objections to the court's jurisdiction over U.S. personnel. Seems like nonsense, like seems like a really untenable position to me, Garrett. But, uh, you know, I wonder if you think they can find a way to thread this needle. Yeah, it's a difficult one, you know, that, you know, I hear, you know, complaints about how perfect, you know, or imperfect the the court system is and, and how the proceedings, um, you know, might not have certain mechanisms that would be a fair trial of any sort. But there's no perfect legal system out there. I think we see that in our own U.S. judicial systems, um, you know, around the country. But, you know, there's there's some legitimate concerns about appearing to manipulate the ICC and using it as some sort of international political tool. Um, and, you know, there's there's that argument about a slippery slope of being subjected to the ICC decisions um, and putting that on on U.S. But, you know, I, I feel like to be to create a more uh, safe international community, we have to be a player in that community and we have to make community agreements uh, and and abide by them. And, you know, I think that's that should be the goal of the United States and all nations. Um, so, you know, it's it, we we use this cookie cutter way of when we're going to use the ICC and try to leverage it and when we we try to repulse it. And it's uh, it's it doesn't seem like uh, we are operating in very good faith when we do that. So, 
you know, I think we have to create a standard. And I think we have to join the international community if we want to build trust and faith in it. Yeah. I mean, what point is having an international court if there are carve outs for some of the most powerful, wealthy countries in the world exactly. and also some of the most aggressive ones? I mean, it's very, I think Russia is also not a party to the ICC, right? Um, so it's not Nor as though the U.S. is out here alone. Yeah. But if, I think it was Lindsey Graham who uh, was quoted at the end of this article as saying if Putin has rehabilitated the ICC in the eyes of Republicans, like he's done us a huge favor. Just surprising from I'm surprised. John's favorite uh, Senator Lindsey yeah, Graham. Yeah, the show pony Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Although he is an attorney and served in the Judge Advocate General's office mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the uh, in the reserves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's either either join it. Or or, you know, abolish it and start over. But saying, no, we're going to we want to we want to have this tool in our toolkit to punish our enemies. But we want to, you know, no one's allowed to pick it up and use it against us. It just, Mm -hmm. again, is is ridiculous. Garrett, I also wanted to ask you, you know, I know Veterans for Peace took part in an online rally this weekend that was calling for an end to fighting in Ukraine for the complete withdrawal of Russian troops and also for an end to NATO expansion. And I wonder if you could talk to us about some what were presented as as realistic avenues for peace soon in Ukraine, especially because, uh, you know, Volodymyr Zelensky has come out talking about Crimea in ways that can be um, either inflammatory or not. Right. Saying a Newsweek article from, I think, yesterday was presenting him as saying Crimea is a red line for Ukraine. Uh, he, He wouldn't discuss the the recognizing the annexation of Crimea. It turns out what he actually said was a little bit more nuanced and that sort of he he did not want to contemplate it, but that it might simply be a reality Ukraine has to accept. But, there, you know, there's a lot of conversation about what what is and isn't going to be acceptable to these two parties. And I wonder what you heard there that uh, made you think you could see a path forward. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's in a large way there there is a U.S. role in this and uh you know, from from our support in NATO and, and you know, reinforcing security measures and agreements that are made, um, you know, sanction powers that we have that we can alleviate as a, as a negotiating tool. I mean, basically, we got to we got to be prepared to complement negotiations that are conducted by the Ukrainian government. And, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal is to ensure that there's some sort of diplomatic peace um, that's pursued. The longer this conflict goes on, the more likely a nuclear weapon will get used. Um, so, you know, finding finding, a, you know, some some resolution as quickly as possible is is what we need to do. And and using all powers we can in, in the negotiating toolbox is is something that we need to put on the table for you for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can't we can't decide for Ukraine what the future of Crimea is, what the future of Donbass is. That's that's up to them. But what we can do is assist them fully in a negotiating effort, in a diplomatic effort. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean uh, lethal aid is what they call it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't mean sending more weapons to, to Ukraine. That means using every tool in the tool book to, to make sure negotiations are successful. Can you, what, what would be some concrete examples of some things that, you know, could, the U.S. could put on the table? Um, helping to enforce the neutrality agreement, you know, lifting up uh, sanctions, um, you know, be, being one of the lead role models in, in reconstruction in Ukraine after a settlement uh, is is put on the table. You know, it doesn't mean that that Russia shouldn't have major hand in reparations and payments. But, you know, there's there's certainly a role that the, the West can play, especially with NATO's involvement in this conflict. Yeah, I wouldn't think our um, history in Afghanistan boats too well no. for that. But again, just because it hasn't happened before, you got to keep, you know, 
saying what it could be and should be. I also wanted to ask, I genuinely don't know how to feel about this, Garrett. Uh, There was some controversy over a New York Times story about Ukrainian draft dodgers. Uh, And there was some criticism that the Times really shouldn't even be running a story that names the names of uh, men in particular who fled the country to avoid taking part in the war or who have otherwise, you know, avoided conscription. Uh, Other people said, uh, you know, it's not unsympathetic necessarily to those people. And I just wondered, you know, what do you think? Like, should the Times be naming people who have left the country to avoid this fight or, or not? Was this something was this something it shouldn't have done akin to sort of doxing some of these people? Yeah, I think it's I, I don't think it's great to individually name anybody. Um, you know, I think a conscripted army is, you know, I, I don't think it should have happened in the first place. You know, Zelensky should, should allow folks that wanted to flee the country to flee the country. Um, you know, it's just one of the worst things we could do to each other is is force is force some sort of draft and conscript people to fight wars. Um, you know, it didn't didn't really uh, play out that well for us in Vietnam and um, you know, let the, let these people go that don't want to fight. We don't know these folks' individual circumstances. And I've heard stories of various people who weren't Ukrainian citizens that were being forced to fight. And, um, you know, there's, there's nuanced situations with each individual and, um, to just dock somebody, um, and put a mark on them is, is I think awful for a massive newspaper and media outlet like, uh, the times. We also, uh, John and I, talked in the beginning of the show about uh, inflation in the United States and and the cost of things going up. And, you know, there are uh, it's not just conscription that puts pressure on people to join the armed forces. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the financial pressures that push people in the United States uh, into joining the military. I know uh, Veterans for Peace was sharing a, a Jacobin article that looked at the role of student debt in um, pushing people to to join the branches of the U.S. military. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit uh, about that and and what our military might look like if so many Americans weren't saddled with so much debt. Yeah, there's definitely an, an economic draft. That's one of the ways we enforce an all-volunteer military is, um, you know, kids are getting out of school, uh, young adults are getting out of out of college with immense amounts of debt. You know, they, they're getting 80,000 a year jobs and still living close to a poverty line because of the amount of debt that they have to incur for, for such a, a long amount of time. Um, so, you know, the, the military recruiter has a book of a million reasons why you should join. And a lot of them are based on economic situations and that, that sort of plight. So, you know, if, if there wasn't such a massive debt, obviously the, the U S military would take a hit. Um, whether kids who can't afford to go to college or go to college and then can't afford to pay their pay their debts, mm-hmm. you know, so it's it's already a crisis in the military. Military recruiters are having such a difficult time right now uh, recruiting individuals and recruitments down all over the map. So um, I, I think it would certainly make a dent. And it's just one of the other predatorial ways that, you know, military recruitment can can really hone in on our, our youth. You know, it seems to me that we may be in the process of squandering an opportunity. And what I mean is uh, we've largely pulled out of, uh, of Iraq. Uh, we've pulled out of Afghanistan. It looks like the war in Syria has wound down or is winding down. And instead of bringing people home and reassessing our military positions around the world, 
maybe even shrinking the Pentagon budget, which would be lovely. Uh, we're out there looking for the next fight. You know, we, we've mocked on this show the, the Obama-era pivot to Asia and what a policy mistake that has, uh, that has been. And it doesn't, it seems like it doesn't matter who's in the White House, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. There's this bipartisan consensus that we constantly need to be somewhere in the world stirring the pot. And then we need larger uh, defense budgets to keep these these little conflicts going all over the place. What do you think? We've we've got uh, Quincy Institute just, you know, put out that. $285 million were put in campaign contributions from oh. the weapons industry oh uh, since God. 9-11, $2.5 on lobbying. Um, you know, it's this is an industry that drives our nation. And if we can't get off of it, um, you know, our policies and our war culture is going to continue to drive us to war, continue to build our, you know, Pentagon budget. And it's 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 a trap. So, you know, yeah, we've, we're out of these conflicts. Even right now, you can look at you know, basically uh, well-armed and trained partisans in, in Ukraine and what's left of the Ukrainian military is is holding back one of the, you know, biggest superpowers and boogeymen that we've created, uh, you know, in the world uh, with Russia. And, you know, we're still trying to use it to justify this massive defense budget, uh, which is, you know, I don't I don't even like to use the word defense budget yeah. because it's, it's oh, yeah. very rarely used for any sort of defense. That's right. No, and I mean, part of that part of that effort is probably going to be uh, trying to separate representatives of or people at least benefiting from that industry and the our media. Right. The the lever has a story out just today uh, about all of the the talking heads who you see all the time on NBC or MSNBC. Uh, these are the examples here. Leon Panetta, Jed Johnson, Michelle Flournoy, Jeremy Bash, all of whom uh make money from the defense industry yeah, yeah, that's who right. work for consulting firms that represent Raytheon, for example, in the, in the uh, case of Panetta. And so again, like I, I noticed this a lot when, uh, you know, NBC will trot out a, a billionaire to talk to you about his, you know, financial advice, not including inherit $500 million. Mm -hmm. um, but if everybody who is put up as a sort of sober analyst to discuss this situation is also in a position uh, to collect money every time the U.S. ships more small arms to Ukraine. I mean, uh, that's a situation that can't hold. Yeah, and all, all of NATO is rearming. That means European countries are sending invoices to the same Lockheed Martin, that's right. Raytheon, General Dynamics uh, corporations that are you know, making 100% profit with the assistance of, you know, U.S. socialism because we give them, you know, all sorts of tax incentives to to build weapons where uh, we don't give those same incentives to build solar panels. Yeah. And so, again, it's it's not to come just to point out that I, I think you should see any U.S. calls for peace generally anywhere in the world is pretty hollow since that's our, our major industry. And if that's the case, then, you know, maybe it's time to look elsewhere for for what the actual path forward should be and not keep looking to representatives of the country uh, that, you know, supplies most of the arms to the world and, and gains to benefit any time any war happens almost anywhere. Here at Reppenhagen, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find uh, more about the work Veterans for Peace is doing? Yeah, veteransforpeace.org is, is our website. We've got all our information out there. And uh, check us out, especially next week. We're going to be out in the streets all over America with the War Industry Resistors Network opposing military industrial complexes. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing the results of that. Thanks again so much for joining us.
You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. There's been a great deal of press coverage lately of two opposing sides of the criminal justice reform issue. On the one hand, conservatives say that a progressive experiment to not ask for bail in what is supposed to be major crimes has led to an increase in crime as people are arrested, scheduled for trial, released, and then commit new crimes. On the other hand, both progressives and conservatives are saying that sentencing reform is needed urgently because draconian sentences with no chance of redemption wreck communities and make the job of police even more difficult. There has to be a fair balance between the two sides. We'll discuss that with Paul Wright, the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Welcome back, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me on the show, John. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Let's talk about this issue of balance. Crime in New York, and especially violent crime, uh, just as an example, is up since the district attorney's office announced its no-bail policy. New Yorkers are frustrated with the rise in crime, and a reaction against it seems to be brewing politically. But there's also a danger of going too far in response. How do you see this playing out? The government has a duty to keep people safe, certainly, but sending people to Rikers Island for as long as two years while they await trial is not justice. Well, I think it's interesting to note that this is almost like a back to the future thing, because uh, going back to Giuliani and, uh, and a lot of his predecessors and, and the folks that followed after him, I mean, you know, Giuliani made the infamous, you know, um, quality of life crime. Right. The police were, were literally arresting thousands of homeless people, of squeegee washers, um, home, you know, just people that were just basically poor and on the streets. And Rikers Island had over 22,000 people locked up at its peak in the late 90s. And yet the flip side of it is that, you know, that's you're just kind of shifting a problem from literally the streets into Rikers Island. And it's almost like an admission that in a post-industrial capitalist society, you've got literally an excess population that the government doesn't know what to do with. And, um, and when they talk about you know, trying to blame uh, no bail and you know, bail reforms that have succeeded in reducing the population of, um, you know, that succeeded in reducing the population of the jail, um, the increase in crime, yes, it's happened, but it, but it's also kind of there's a causation issue. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that criminologists have struggled with for the past um, 50 or 60 years is, you know, what causes crime to go up and what causes crime rates to go down? And it sounds counterintuitive, but actually locking more people up hasn't, hasn't led to reducing crime rates. And that's and, and that's one of the kind of like paradoxes of this. And there's a lot of theories. I mean, literally, you talk to any criminologist, and there's almost as many different theories as there are um, criminologists. And almost everyone has their pet theory. Everything from legalized abortion uh, in the 70s caused uh, a reduction in crime rates. Phasing out the lead in gasoline and lead paint led to a reduction in crime rates 20 years later and stuff like that. And they're just that, mostly theories. But... 
But I think that the bigger thing is when people ask about, okay, so what's, what's driving crime rates? And one of the things is that crime is very concentrated in specific neighborhoods. And, and not surprisingly, the biggest correlation between the crimes with, between the neighborhoods with the highest crime rates tend to be those with the highest rates of poverty. And, and I think that it shouldn't come as any surprise as kind of inequality and poverty to be what breeds crime in this country. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, poverty alone doesn't necessarily lead to high crime rates. You know, I think, you know, there's a lot of poor countries in different parts of the world that by objective standards, they're very poor countries, but they don't have super high crime rate. Right. So, you know, so that's, so in some respects, the, uh, you know, the push against the bail reform, you know, kind of comes back to the people that are pushing, you know, to roll back these reforms are pretty much the people that had their day in the sun 20 years ago when the population at Rikers was, you know, over 20,000 people and not doing very well there. Of course, they're not doing any better with 5,000 prisoners than they did with 20,000. But, um, but, you know, they're not really giving a solution of, you know, we'll just lock everyone up. And I think it's important to remember the, the whole thing about the bail. The purpose of bail is to ensure that people show up for their court hearings mm-hmm. and show up for you know, for court appearances, it's not to stop crime or whatever. People are presumed, or well, on paper anyways, or in a theory, they're presumed to be innocent. So just because someone's been arrested for a crime, as you noted at the, at the outset of the show, locking someone up for two years while they await trial for crimes they may well be innocent of, um, you know, that's not justice either. Right. That is not justice either. Speaking of justice, too, there was an op-ed published in a Kansas newspaper yesterday that I just happened to stumble upon. Uh, It was written by a former U.S. attorney for Kansas, and he was saying that sentences need to be shorter. Get this. The U.S. attorney saying that sentences need to be shorter and that all prisoners must have the opportunity to better themselves and to learn a skill while they're in prison. You've been saying that for decades. He's obviously correct, but is there a political will in this country to reform sentences and to make uh, education and training in prisons something like it was in the 70s when you actually could learn a skill in prison and come out as an electrician, a a mechanic, a plumber, something like that? Well, I think in some respects it was almost, you know, one of the things that's that's driven the, the rise in the prison population in this country where our prison and jail populations increased by over 500% over the last um, 40 years isn't because uh, crime rates have gone up or because, in my opinion, I don't think it's because Americans are bigger criminals than anyone else in the world. Um, and that's in the context the U.S. has more prisoners locked up, both in terms of raw numbers and per capita of any country in the world, yeah. basically because legislatures lengthen the sentences. Yes. And, and I'd say a good way to think about it is that People who would have gotten probation 40 years ago, now they do jail time. People that would have done jail time 40 years ago, now they're doing prison time. And someone that would have gone to prison for two or three years, 40 years ago, now they're doing 10 to 15. Right. And, and life sentences. I mean, that's the thing that really sets the United States apart from the rest of the world is, you know, the frequency and the commonality of, of, life, of these extremely long sentences or, you know, Buck Rogers sentences. Yeah. Or, you know, they're, and for the most part, they're real life sentences in the, you know, and the judges and the prosecutors, when they sentence people, they don't expect them to outlive the sentence. You know, it's, it's a knowing decision, you know, the sentencing process. And that's something that really sets the United States apart 
from the rest of the world. And, you know, I don't know that, you know, there's been a lot of talk. I mean, for the last 20 plus years, there's been a lot of talk about reducing sentences. But the funny thing is that even when they pass some half-hearted measure that'll reduce a few sentences that affect very few people by even a little bit, usually the same legislation uh, contains provisions either criminalizing new conduct that previously wasn't criminal sure. or they're lengthening sentences for something else. So, and that's why I think that for the most part, uh, in most parts of the country, except for a couple of states, um, prison populations of either remain stagnant and steady, or they, uh, they pretty much um, are continue growing exponentially. And, and I think that one of the ways to look at it is that in the 1990s, the United States, in, in 1990, when I started Prison Legal News, the United States had a million people locked up in prisons and jails. By two, and it took us 200 plus years to get there, from 1776 to 1990 to lock up our first million people. And then it took us another 10 years to lock up our second million. So between 1990 and the year 2000, the United States effectively doubled its prison and jail population. And the United States was opening like a new medium and maximum security prison was opening like every two weeks around the country. And one of the reasons I know this is because uh, we were busy adding these, all these prisons to our databases as they started filling up with our subscribers. And our subscribers were getting moved around to them. And whatever the talk is, and, and it's just for the most part, it's just that talk. Whatever the talk is about reducing sentences, no one's talking about closing two or three prisons or, or closing a prison every weeks around the country for a decade. And that's literally what it would take just to get us back to like 1990 numbers. And I think that's kind of where the real, um, you know, where the real problem lies. And the other thing, too, that also gets kind of unaddressed in any of this discussion is the criminalization of more and more and more behavior. Um, when you think about it, I think when the United States was founded, there was something like three or four three or four things were federal crimes. I think it was like, you know, bribery, treason, counterfeiting, and piracy. I right. The only, those were the only federal crimes that existed when the United States became a nation in 1776. And today, there's so many crimes on the books that, you know, senators and, and federal prosecutors, no one can really say with any degree of specificity how many actions or laws are just federal crimes. And then when you start looking at, um, at state laws, it gets even worse. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that are criminalized. And then you start looking at like, like drivers of mass incarceration. You know, why are people being locked up in vast numbers? And one thing is, on any given day, at least 50,000 people are locked up for being too poor to pay child support. That's not even a criminal activity. No. Being poor. <laughs> and there's 50,000 people locked in a cell on any given day because of that. And people wonder why we have so many people locked up in this country. You know, I, I've written about this a couple of times. Over the last 15 years now, Congress has created 50 new crimes per year for 15 years, not 50 new laws. 50 new crimes where there you know, were 50 things that you could have done a year ago and they were perfectly legal and today they're federal felonies. Um, I've written articles about you know, people being arrested for, for catching fish that were too small and not throwing them back. That's a federal felony, you know, depending on the fish. And probably the people catching them. Yeah. Because a lot of these will be 
you know, prevent, preventing Native people from harvesting in their exactly traditional right. ways that happen to be outside commercial seasons. And, you know, yeah, you see these laws that are like, how dare, you know, 15 people take exactly fish right at the wrong time we need to protect these stocks for the commercial uh commercial harvesters that didn't come in and take exponent you know exactly multiples more of that yeah i've written about a woman who was uh prosecuted for whistling at a whale while it was eating a seal because well, she it was, was a real hot whale well she was charged she was trying to get the whale's attention because she was running a tourist boat and people wanted to take pictures of the whale so she whistled you know yeah and she was charged with with interfering with the feeding of a wild animal, which is a, a sub part of the Endangered Species Act. And, uh, you know, there was no harm to the whale and there was no criminal intent. She ended up taking a plea to a misdemeanor, but not before she was fired from her job with the federal government, lost her pension and had her whale watching business uh, driven into bankruptcy. So... Yeah, there are a lot of stupid laws on the books and Congress just keeps creating more. Paul, you published something in Prison Legal News magazine recently about a prison in Alabama. I wanted to ask you about this. The article says that the Justice Department alleges that Alabama is deliberately indifferent to prison overcrowding and that the state's prisons are riddled with, quote, prisoner on prisoner and guard on prisoner violence, unquote. Another lawsuit, and this is again from the Justice Department, says that because of chronic understaffing, Alabama prison officials lock mentally ill prisoners in their cells for 24 hours a day to keep them from hurting themselves. But that didn't stop 30 of them from committing suicide in just the past two years. What in the world is happening in Alabama? And are there any serious efforts to improve the prison system down there? Well, yes. I mean, this is part of the problem is that um, we've been reporting on these issues in Alabama for literally decades. And one of the ironies is if you look at the history of this stuff, I mean, like everything else, it's not like these problems crop up overnight. Back in the early 1970s, a federal lawsuit was filed challenging all the conditions of confinement in the the Alabama um, Department of Corrections. And after a bench trial, a federal judge, I forget who, who it was, put the entire prison system under basically court order, that they had to improve conditions for everything, everything starting with, you know, brutality, excessive force, medical care, overcrowding, dilapidated facilities, inadequate food, you know, you name it. Um, everything was wrong with it. And basically, for the next 30-plus years, the Alabama prison system kind of struggled with stuff, and they puttered around, and you know, kind of slowly dragged themselves into the 19th century. And then by the end of the 1990s, though, Congress enacted the Prison Litigation Reform Act, and uh, the state of Alabama promptly moved to dissolve these federal court orders. And it wasn't because conditions had gotten better or the state had complied with them. It's just because Congress gave them a new vehicle to attack these laws that made it um, very difficult for, for prisoners to secure federal court relief. So all these previous court orders were dissolved, and then basically the state prison system promptly uh, began its its decline and, and everything got – what little had gotten better over the previous 20 years of litigation steadily got worse over the next 20 years. And that kind of brings us to where we are today to kind of a prison system that's massively overcrowded. It's at around 180 percent of capacity. It's chronically understaffed. Um, it has massive levels of violence, uh, both prisoner on prisoner – 
And um, the, the guards that remain are, are increasingly and incredibly brutal in an effort, in a kind of a failed effort to try to maintain order. Um, medical care is largely non-existent. And so, yes, even the uh, Department of Justice has filed a lawsuit on that. There's also a very big and wide-ranging class action lawsuit that was filed by the Southern Poverty Law Center a number of years ago, challenging everything from challenging everything from uh, the inadequate medical and mental health care to the high levels of violence and overcrowding. And uh, Judge Morris Thompson has issued a number of you know scathing orders. I mean, you know, these are like three, four hundred page court rulings. Yeah. Oh, we're going to have to cut it off there. My apologies to Paul Wright. Paul is the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. You're listening to Political Misfits. It's the top of the hour, so we'll take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, getting into now a, a very eclectic mix of domestic stories, <laughs> some linked in ways you wouldn't expect. Like we've got Disney, the GOP, yep. gay and trans rights. Yep. Sure. Would you also know the Disney features in a story about uh, police brutality that we're going to get to Ooh. later? I hadn't seen that. See, exactly. It's very interesting. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about some labor victories on the East Coast and what could be coming up on the West Coast. We're going to talk a little bit about, I hope, catch up on a story that we discussed a year ago, uh, the evictions of unhoused people from Echo Park in L.A. and see uh, what how many, if any, of the city's promises to the people that they uh, booted from that encampment have come true. We're going to get into all that and a lot more with Tina Desiree Berg. She's a reporter for Status Quo and host of the podcast District 34. Tina, thanks for joining us. Happy to be back. How are you guys doing? We're great. We started talking about this uh, this story about Jojo Siwa not being invited to the Nickelodeon <laughs> Kid Choice Awards yesterday. But I, I felt like I wanted to talk about it a little bit more. And I know that you have been talking a lot about... Um, conservatives turning on Disney. And so I wanted to sort of put these things together. Jojo Siwa, as we mentioned yesterday in what is now the uh, the Kids' Choice <laughs> Watch <laughs> portion of the show, um, she wasn't invited to the Kids' Choice Awards over the weekend, despite being nominated for an award. And I think we really have to consider whether this is because Jojo Siwa came out as gay a, a while back. I forget if it was a couple months ago or a year ago, you know, and I wonder if Nickelodeon is succumbing to this pressure now to uh, to treat any defection from the gender or sexual majority as as sexualized. Right. And, and inappropriate to to present to children. But I also wanted to talk about what is going on with Disney and the GOP. Right. Because you have this this erstwhile conservative darling that, that would produce wholesome content. All of a sudden, uh, the, the target of protests uh, which I know you you have reported on. And so I wanted to talk about these sort of like cultural mashup here. It's a strange cultural uh, mashup. You know, interestingly enough, I think that the great instigator here is that Roy Disney's uh, kid is transgender. Mm-hmm. So Charlie Disney has now come out 
as a trans kid. So Roy is now wanting to support transgender rights. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Christian nationalists, I'm thinking Sean Foyt, who is the one that staged this hold the line rally in front of Disney Studios last week. Um, you know, he's a far right Christian nationalist. He's been linked to the CNCMP, which is the Council for National Policy. And in fact, they had a meeting down uh, in Laguna Niguel, which is a little bit south of uh, here in Orange County, a couple of months ago. And he had posted a photo from there at the CNP meeting with Alex Villanueva, who is the Democratic Party um, associated sheriff of Los Angeles. And at this point, I don't know how leftist he is, though. That's just, you know, what he ran as. Agreed. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> So, you know, so all of these things are mashing up. They're angry because of Roy's stance uh, with transgender rights. They do use the word, as you said, sexualization of children. That's one of the key words they use. Um, so they were out there protesting what they said were uh, pedophiles. So the Disney executives were being referred to as pedophiles, the sexualization of the kids, um, demonic. You, I mean, that yeah. was a common word you'd see on the signs as they're being demonic. And I think another aspect of this is the far right is also jumping on board this bandwagon. Um, you had Ryan Sanchez, who is associated with the Rise Above movement. Um, for folks that don't know who RAM is, RAM is one of the groups that was part of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Um, yeah, three of their members have been arrested uh, for crimes and hate crimes. A couple of their members have gone to Ukraine a few years back and trained with um, both White Rex, who is the Russian Nazi that lives there, and the Azov Battalion folks. Um, came back here. They've uh, staged White Lives Matters rallies in Huntington Beach. So I don't, I don't think calling this guy a neo-Nazi is hyperbolic at all. I think that's what he is. So he was promoting this event um, on his Telegram and uh, made several posts about it. And he was also present, actually, at the... Uh, anti-vax rally downtown on Saturday. So, I mean, there's all of these things are sort of mashing up into one giant pool of um, unmoored anti-establishment feeling. I don't know what else to call it at this point. Yeah. <laughs> because strange bedfellows all around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wanted to, the other <laughs> thing is that the, the other thing that makes some of this difficult, not all of it, right? I, I you know, I, I don't want to overstate it, but certainly the entertainment industry and Hollywood is a place where there is a lot of exploitation, right? There is a lot of exploitation yeah. of, of, of everyone, of young people, of children. It's not for demonic rituals. It's no. for profit. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of like if yeah. you could redirect this to say, if you really cared about the exploitation of young people, you would take a look at like, you know, the, the way people are, are able to be exploited by the incredibly wealthy. Sure. OK, great. Like, let's talk. Let's talk about that. That is about workers. Right. Let's yeah. talk about income inequality. Let's talk about kids. You know, now their their accounts are much more protected if they're child actors than they used to be. There was a time they weren't. But, yeah, there was definitely issues there. There always has been issues there. But. You know, a lot of the conspiracy theories always grow out of something that's sort of truthful mm -hmm. and they just grow into something much larger than that. And and right now we're just seeing this uh, sort of, I don't know, mix up of these various groups that are getting together and crossing over on agreement of certain topics. And part of what's driving that, I think, you know, and I've said this before, is the income inequality. I think fascism, far right viewpoints, 
uh, dissatisfaction with the state for, for valid reasons. I mean, there's legitimate beefs to be had here. And the Democratic Party isn't offering a left exit to the problem. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this is a global problem. And we can see, look at what's going on in France to see that that's the case. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I know you've been commenting on it. You know, we, we have the French election. Round one is over. It's going to be a runoff between Marine Le Pen. Uh, Marine, it's, I know we're supposed to say Le Pen, but oh, Le Pen is fine. <laughs> and Emmanuel Macron. The, uh, Macron is still expected to win, but anything is possible. And it does seem like this race could be tighter than the, the central and certainly the left would want. And ever since these results came in, we have seen headlines about how the French left is going to play kingmaker. Yes. And when I see that phrase, I also see uh, this sort of implicit threat that if Le Pen wins or if she has a better showing than expected, it will be blamed on the left for not towing the yeah. line. And I know <laughs> you have been saying, you know, this is a setup. We, you know, leftists well, end up getting blamed win, right? for the failures of, of neoliberals. <laughs> exactly. And so I wanted to talk about that. Exactly. But this is the same old song and dance, right? Yeah. We see it repeated across time. So, you know, neoliberal policy is really what's to blame here. We've been privatizing programs. We have been having massive wealth extraction to the 1% from the, the rest of the working class. I mean, we've seen, for example, one metric, the CEO pay to worker pay has gone from an average of like 20 to one in the mid 1990s to 300 to one now. So yeah. where is the, the money's there, but it's all going to the top. And this is you know producing massive income inequality. We have a very big problem with unaffordable housing. You know, you can't pay rent on minimum wage. It's just not possible. Do the math. So in, these things are happening globally, not just in France, not just the United States. It's a global problem. So now you get to the point where you have somebody like Maureen, who's coming out. You know, her father started the National Front Party in the 70s. So this is an old fascist party. Her father was, you know, a Nazi sympathizer. I don't think, again, I don't think this is hyperbola. He was, uh, you know, arrested for inciting uh, anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial, crimes, denying crimes against humanity. I mean, you can look up this guy's history. It's pretty, it's pretty bleak. So, and I think she doesn't far too far from, the apple doesn't far too far from the tree, right? It's France first. She's, you know, linked to a lot of anti-Muslim commentary, xenophobic commentary, but she's also telling the people in much the same way a lot of these guys have, like Trump, uh, Boris, all of them, I'm going to do something about workers' rights. I'm going to do something about pay inequality. I'm going to address the lack of affordable housing. And the left isn't providing a left exit. So, you know, you did have a another candidate. Obviously, it's a parliamentary system. So unlike our country, where we have the two candidates and some random third-party candidates, they do have a robust parliamentary system where you will see six, seven, eight, nine people running for office and then, you know, go from there. So so the left guy, why they're saying he's the kingmaker is he also had held some anti-EU, slightly anti-NATO stances. I wouldn't say anti-Persuade, but he's being labeled at that. I would say they were just critical for good reasons, you know, in much the same way Americans will sometimes say, well, you know, what's NATO's uh, play? What is their part and parcel to things that happen in Europe? You know, nothing happens in isolation. So he's had some legitimate criticism there. But his voters, it's easy to see how some of his voters might cross over to support Marine because of some of those stances. So they might be able to say, like, I'll ignore the racism because at least she's going to do something about income inequality. Now, I don't personally think that that's true at all. I think she's a very dangerous person in much the same way Trump was. Right. But Trump sold that line to people. People believed it, even though he was 100 percent part of the platonomy and problem. They still believed it because 
it's the alternative, right? She's she's able she's able to position herself as the alternative to a system that is failing everybody. Yeah. There's two parties. There's three parties. There's four main parties. They're failing you. It's systemic. I'm the untried alternative. Try me. And unfortunately, I mean, I think also the problem is there seems to be a lot more energy and success at uh, castigating people for making that choice is to say, well, look, this person makes more sense on domestic issues or so, whatever uh, energy and economic issues uh, than the other. And I'll, I'll hold my nose and ignore uh, ignore the, the racism. Uh, there's a lot more, I think, energy for. Uh, criticizing and shunning people who make that choice than for saying, here's a real, here's a viable alternative if you don't want to do that. And I think I, I wonder what you think about how you sort of thread the needle between not spending too much energy, just criticizing random people for the way they vote, um, but also not, I mean, not necessarily deciding to meet anyone anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. Know. So, you know, I do think the danger is there and her racist positions are very scary, mm -hmm. um, you know, as as was with Hitler. We can go back and look at that. He won a lot of that not based on popularity at all. He was the Nazis were a very small percentage of the original block of voters there. But because of the income inequality that was present at that time. And I think, you know, a lot of the times you see a, a repeat of this. So I do think it's dangerous. But I also understand why that happens, why people that are desperate are like, I'm not getting help from anybody else. Maybe they'll actually help me. And if they're not part of the groups that are marginalized, it's easier for them to push it aside. Yeah. I think it's dangerous, but it's something that happens. Yeah. On the flip side, I also find it incredibly problematic when uh, the parties voters shame voters because that's never going to win an election. You cannot shame somebody into voting for who you want them to vote for. It's not going to happen. You know where you're going to find out what they think inside the voting booth when you're not there to tell them what to do. So it's shocking to me that this is still a prevalent messaging. Like I see the DNC doing this and I just shake my head because it's like, you guys, you're not going to be able to, to, to shame people into agreeing with you. You have to go out and win those votes. That is your job. This is still a democracy. Yeah. Albeit a sick one, but <laughs> yeah, you know, no, it but is. it's still part and parcel to what we're supposed to be doing as electeds, right? We're supposed to go out there and win votes. That should be the attitude that they have. And it's not what they're, you know, expressing. And it's very disturbing to me. So yeah, completely agree. Hey, Tina, let's let's switch. I want to get an update from you on a story that we spoke to you about a year ago. Uh, which is the eviction of homeless people from L.A.'s uh, Echo Park and the sort of shady origins of that action and its and its implementation. I know The Guardian put out a story uh, at the end of last month yeah. saying for all the promises that were made to people who were, you know, thrown violently out of uh, semi-permanent housing structures that they had set up, all these promises about how they were going to be, you know, fast-tracked into into homes, uh, you know, in different, different better shelters. How many of those have come to fruition 17 so, so 17 <laughs> people are housed who were who that's were unhoused before wow that's correct 17 uh you know even a year on i'm still frustrated by that entire experience they spent almost two million dollars that night the lapd lapd did and, it, and there was violence there was journalists arrested i mean everybody's you know seen the stories mm -hmm. i actually had gone back and uh, spoke with some of the unhoused individuals about a month later to see what was going on even then. And most of them were having problems at that time. So maybe 48 of them, if I remember correctly, were able to find temporary um, housing, but it would did, it came at a cost. Like I spoke to one gal who had a job working uh, the night shift at a hotel and she 
had to leave Project Room Key because of all of these, uh, they have all of these ridiculous rules that they put on these folks. So if you're in Project Room Key, you have to check in I, like 6 p.m. at night or something. They have three check-ins a day. If you miss one, you're in trouble. You know, uh, another guy who was a handyman, he couldn't bring his tools into the room because those were not allowed. So how are people supposed to like live under these circumstances? You're basically telling them, we're not giving you your key to your own room. That's not what this is. We're going to monitor your situation. If we feel something is um, not up to what we want it to be, then we're going to throw you out. So a lot of these people were just tossed out. They had uh, on the flyer, I remember just being appalled because Mitch O'Farrell, who is the councilman responsible for this, was talking about how there were these safe parking lots that people could park their cars in instead. And then I get the flyer and there's like a total of six spots. What? Like, are you (laughs) serious? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I still have the flyer in my office pinned to the wall because I can't even believe it. I'm like, wow, that's just ridiculous. So, I mean, the reality is, is these people ended up in these positions, not because they were addicted to drugs. Yes, there is some of that. I'm not going to say that's 100% gone. There is some of that, but it's certainly not the majority. There were another two individuals that I spoke to. They were actually students at UCLA, for example, and they couldn't afford student housing. Uh, they were taking loans out already to pay for tuition, books, et cetera. And they decided that they were going to you know, camp out instead of, of having the student housing to save that money. So this is a mix of individuals that just can't make it in this ridiculous economy that we're in here in Los Angeles. Yeah. And and there's not, you know, anybody that says that this was a success is completely out of their mind. And I know Mitch O'Farrell is trying to make that claim. And he was basically calling the Lasha report, which is uh, who oversees the uh, housing here, was just not being accurate, even though it's incredibly accurate. It just isn't very flattering for him. And he's running for office now. Yeah, I mean, it's a success if the problem is I see homeless people and I don't like it. You know, that's what all these these things That's exactly right. Let's get them off the streets so I don't have to see them. Poof, problem is gone. But that's just not reality. Yeah. You know, and so a lot of these individuals are actually back out there on the street. I know that the Guardian piece was able to track down a few of these individuals and find them and and they're unhoused again, Mm -hmm. which is not shocking. Of course they are. Meanwhile, the money they spent just in those two days at Echo Park Lake Two million dollars. They could have put up permanent housing for every single one of the individuals that was in a tent there. No, but of course I mean, the, they just don't want to. Yeah. They, so like my beef with the government at this point is like you guys don't really want to address the the systemic issues that are causing the problem. You just want to kind of, you know, put a rainbow over the top of it and say it's fine. Yeah. But eventually, you know, we're going to reach a point where it's just becomes more violence. It's untenable. And if we don't address these issues, there's going to be increases in crime. That's, of course, that's going to happen. There's going to be an increase in homelessness. I, it's very frustrating. And there will be more money, more money sent to, uh, I, I would make a bet, more money sent to law enforcement to deal with the problem instead of any of the other uh, avenues and social services that can facilitate it. Because they ask for more money. Yeah. yeah, they're like, we need more money to do. But my thing is, like, why is that even being put into the jurisdiction of the LAPD to begin with? It's, it shouldn't be. We need to sort of have a conversation about that. I think a lot of the services that the LAPD is being tasked with, they're not suited for. There are better ways to deal with these issues. But again, I, this is where we're at because of the neoliberal policies, right? Our, our cities run by real estate development money. And in the meantime, we have all these, these vacant um, domestic military bases all around the country that are just going uh, to seed. They're, they're useless. You've got the tiny homes movement which um, is successful and affordable. And we're not making use of that either. 
And then we, as you say correctly, we we turn over the problem of quote unquote solving the the problem of unhoused Americans to the police of all people. No, of all people. In fact, there was somebody floating a plan to open up some of the empty cells at Twin Towers uh, to the unhoused, and I'm like, wow, we're going to put them in the actual prison now. Oh my god, <laughs> is this a joke? Oh my god, just but preemptively. I will say this, um, Preemptively, exactly. We did have a small, tiny house uh, place open in Eagle Rock, California, which is about 10 minutes north of where Echo Park is um, about a month ago. But it's it's just not enough housing. Like we need hundreds of those, not one little place. You know what I'm saying? You know, and it's funny. You can actually buy them on Amazon. Can you really now? Dozens of them for Hmm. sale on Amazon. Yeah, Yeah. you sure can. Yeah. So there's more economically efficient and more humane ways to deal with the problem. But, you know, God forbid they tackle the idea that the CEO shouldn't be getting paid 300 times that exactly. an average worker. Yeah, exactly. God forbid we have that conversation. Well, let's talk about some of the uh, some labor action that could be coming up on the West Coast. Of course, we've been talking about some of these East Coast victories. Seems like every day there's a new Starbucks store voting to unionize, yeah. which is pretty exciting. It's more yeah. than a uh, dozen now. Of course, we talked More than a dozen, yeah. uh, to, to Chris Smalls about the brand new Amazon Labor Union and their victory in Staten Island. Chris. Uh, but I wanted to ask a, a while back, it was flagged that the uh, International Longshore and Warehouse Union's contract is going to expire, I think, in June. It covers 22,000 yeah. workers. Uh, there is some uh, question as to what kind of contract they will be willing to agree to. And I also see that I think just yesterday, 4,000 Stanford nurses agreed to strike. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what are the big the big labor battles underway or brewing uh, on the west coast there's a bunch you know i will say this generally speaking i'm thrilled to see that the labor movement is alive and kicking once again because i don't think we're going to get to the place we need to get to with just electoral politics so i think this robust great awakening we have with the labor movement is fantastic I think actually the biggest one that we're going to be facing is Kroger. Mm. So Kroger is uh, a large uh, grocery chain here. So they they own multiple brands, not just Kroger. I think Kroger is the third largest employer in, in, in the America. United States. Yeah. yeah, I used to work for Kroger, and I was a I was a member of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union there. Oh, right on. Yeah, and so. They are getting ready to probably strike because Kroger's been very greedy for a long time. I actually covered some uh, many sort of walkouts that they had over the last year. Like one of the things they did is they provided COVID extra pay, but then they took it away like two months later. Then, and instead of providing it, the city jumped in and said, no, we have to have this paid for. They decided to close these stores instead. Like that was their response. They're like, okay, well, we're going to close these stores as opposed to like give workers extra pay. Meanwhile, like in, like in every one of these stories, meanwhile, the CEO is making crazy money, right? The the shareholders are making crazy money. So the company isn't unprofitable. They can afford to actually pay workers a decent pay. Um, another thing that they did during COVID that um, I thought was a real game changer is at the beginning of it, they had uh, their workers doing deliveries, grocery deliveries. So you could go online, you could order your deliveries, and they would um, bring them to you, and it would be a Kroger employee. Well, they got rid of that and moved it over to either DoorDash or Instacart. I can't remember which one now because they didn't want the labor costs. So they let all of those uh, workers go mid- mm-hmm. midway through. And so there was a push. So there's been a buildup now of things that have occurred. Uh, they came back with a really not a great offer on the next contract, uh, you know, not not enough of an increase of pay. 
So I think we're going to be looking at possibly um, a big Kroger strike. And if that happens, you know, that'll be great. I think IATSE is another one to mention. They they obviously settled their disagreement, but the threat of a strike, sometimes just getting the strike authorization in hand yeah. is enough to push these guys to negotiate, right? Yeah. And we've seen a lot of that going on. So I think every time these unions say, okay, we're going to take a vote, are we willing to do an actual strike? And they get a yes back. And it's, you know, 90 to 100% of the, the union members saying yes, that forces these guys to come back to the table and do something about it. So um, I think it's great. I think Chris Malls did a fantastic job in New York with uh, his movement. This was a situation where you had the actual workers organizing their own union because they didn't have a big union backing them. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. He gave a we we only had a few minutes with him recently, but he t- gave a really good interview talking about his uh, the strategies they used and the tactics that worked and the ones that didn't and how they came back after their first um, setback. And yeah, it was really it was really inspiring. I mean, this was a very this was a very thoughtful and deliberate process. It, it didn't happen by accident. And there were a lot of obstacles. And so you do have to give you know, you have to give them credit for understanding. 100%. And I hope he expands. He needs to take his show on the road. Go, Chris, because every one of these, you know, every single one of these, uh, you know, Amazon places that unionizes, it just makes it, it, it brings it this, um, brings it to the inevitable point where Amazon's going to have to dress it, you know, carte blanche across the country. Yeah. yeah. And that's what needs to happen. And yeah. I think once that happens with Amazon, once that happens with Starbucks, once that happens with Kroger, you know, it's going to force everything to come to the to the brink of like, OK, we have to really uh, look at how we're handling labor in the United States now, because this is an overwhelming uh, movement that we can't continue to ignore. And, you know, that's maybe that's what it takes to get the platonomy to stop extracting everybody's wealth. I mean, they like to make this commentary about how, uh, you know, the left wants to redistrib- redistribute capital, right? We, yeah. It's about capital redistribution. Well, my response to that is like, you guys have been doing that for 30 years now. Yeah, yeah. Every policy that you've instated with your bot Congress that that is made an unlevel uh, playing field for workers' rights is exactly that. And you know what it is. So just, you know, it's time to come and pay the piper. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple minutes left. I sent, I know I wanted to ask about this. It's a very, very long article in the New Republic about marijuana, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. the marijuana industry. Yeah. And so, uh, Tina, I would say if you if you want to talk about that, we can do that. Or we can talk about uh, cops playing Disney songs <laughs> to prevent them from They're being both taped. Good I'll, subjects. I'll let you pick. The Disney song player guy was really funny, though. He did that because he thought that the YouTube video and he was right would get a copyright uh, strike author and it would be pulled down. And that's why he did what he did. Yeah. So clever but yeah dude that's not what you're supposed to be doing as a cop come on now yeah yeah um i do think the marijuana business thing is interesting in the sense that the people that should be benefiting from legalized marijuana are not it's you know it goes in line with everything else we've been discussing today right Mm -hmm. the richest are getting rich off of it because they're the only ones that can afford to play the game the way it's set up yeah so i'll set up the story a little bit it's it's talking about the failure of legalizing marijuana in L.A. to bring wealth to L.A.'s black community, who, of course, are among the groups who were disproportionately hurt by the criminalization of marijuana. And it sort of follows the perspective of of two different specific people. Uh, But it does show, I think, you know, how hard it is to rectify the damage done by a, a specific industry or a specific law when you aren't looking at any of the other factors creating inequality. Like you can't really just use the marijuana industry to help black people uh, 
regain some of the lost ground to the drug war and everything else without actually also addressing how how city politics work. Yeah, no, and it's true. And it's just it, the way that this entire and I don't think it's California in isolation that is experiencing this. Mm-hmm. I think there's been like a slowdown um, in legalizing marijuana at the state level from folks that once uh, supported it for the reasons that you're discussing. They want to have measures put in place that make it easier for those that are going to be put out, like, for example, you know, illegal drug dealers, why can't they transition to do something legally now? Right. Mm -hmm. Versus large corporations that can come in there with the the money needed to, uh, you know, back what it takes Mm -hmm. to set up these businesses with the licensing and everything else. If you, you can't just sort of make a race, a determinant without also looking at, uh, you know, if you're talking about people who have been in this business for a while and maybe have convictions like, Sure. Okay, you might want to provide these different incentives to people based on different levels of hardship. But, you know, if you don't eliminate some of the barriers to regular work that having a conviction on your record uh, brings, then you're not going to help the very people who've been harmed by these policies. Exactly. And and that's exact the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Right. So, I mean, this should be something that be could be used to address the wealth disparity right between whites and blacks in the city. And it's just not happening that way. And also, you know, there's been some pushback up in uh, Northern California as well because of all the areas where we've traditionally grown pot illegally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the legal pot farmers have set up shop there and some of the illegal entities have now transferred over and gotten the licenses and they're growing pot legally. But there's still a lot of folks that don't want to do that because it's too costly for the same reasons. It'll, they're claiming it'll put them out of business to have to pay for these licenses, et cetera, et cetera. So they're making it very difficult to transfer this business over in a way that's uh, that makes sense. Uh, so, you know, you even had, who was it? I'm trying to remember now off the top of my head, but there was some, <clears throat> one of the far-right Republicans is now like gone from opposing pot to to, like thinking it's a good thing and buying stock in a company. Oh, yeah. Well, of course you do, because you think you can make money off of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, Wasn't it... Uh- Boehner? John Boehner, I think. Was it Boehner? It was one of these guys. Yeah. Where I you think were just that's like, right. What? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, of course. It's like the cynic in me is like, okay. Mm-hmm. But hey, I mean. But, you know, so, oh yeah. So I just think it's, it's you know, it could be set up differently and addressed differently. And that's just not happening. It's the neoliberals taking over once again. Yep, exactly. Hey, we've came, we've come full circle in this conversation. That was yeah. Tina Desiree Berg <laughs> of Status Coup and the podcast uh, District 34. Tina, great to catch up with you. Uh, you want to tell our listeners where they can find your work? Uh, so Twitter is the best place to find everything because it ends up there. And it's just my name, Tina Desiree Berg um, on Twitter. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again very soon. All right. Sounds good. Bye. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriagu, here with Michelle Woody. Our friend Medea Benjamin recently returned from a trip to Afghanistan, where she held meetings with women's groups and groups promoting education. It was her first trip to the country since the chaotic U.S. military pullout. So what is life like in Afghanistan now? Will the country be able to rebuild? And what will be the role of women? Medea Benjamin joins us. 
She's an anti-war and anti-torture activist and the co-founder of the peace group Code Pink. Welcome back, Medea. Hey, so nice to be on with you. I'm so happy that you were able to do it. Thank you uh, very much. And I wanted to start with um, with this. You've been to Afghanistan many, many times. So tell us how this trip was different. What was the public mood? Are Afghans optimistic about their futures or are the country's problems just too daunting, too difficult? Afghans are very pessimistic about their future. Things are extremely bad. Uh, The economic situation is awful since the U.S. pulled out and took its money with it and took Afghans' money as well. Yeah. That means, you know... The 75% of the budget that would come from foreign aid was gone. And then the $7 billion in U.S. banks that belong to the Afghan Central Bank has been frozen. So the economy is reeling. And then people are very uncertain about what the future is. They don't know what the Taliban are going to do, what kind of edicts they're going to put out from one day to the next. You know, when we planned our trip, it was supposed to be when the girls' schools were all going to be opening. And uh, that was on March 23rd. And just days before we were leaving, they announced, no, the high schools are not going to be open for girls. So, you know, they went back on their word and the girls were just distraught. And of course, many of their parents as well. How how it, will the country or, or will the country be able to, to turn this around? You know, we heard promises from the Taliban as the U.S. was pulling out that they were going to respect women's rights, they were going to allow girls to get um, educations, and then the U.S. took all their money and froze all their money. Uh, Do they have, first of all, do they have the will to allow um, girls to be educated? And secondly, uh, what are the prospects of them being able to recoup what it was that the U.S. took from them? I think that they're going to have to reverse that decision about the girls' high schools because there's so much opposition within the country and from the international community. On the inside, you see the opposition coming from all quarters, including from the religious community that just had a gathering of ulema who came out with a call saying Islam values the education of women Uh, And you even have members of the Taliban that we met with, including in the Ministry of Education, said, you know, we're waiting for the uh, okay, and the the minute afterwards, we're going to be on this. We want our own girls to get educated. So it's just coming from the very top, from the emir who's listening to some of the most conservative elements of the Taliban. He really has to listen to the broad sectors of society Uh, Now, that said, you brought up the other issue about the money frozen, but I want to make a a link to the girls' schools because uh, we went out one day, for example, giving out uh, food aid to very, very poor communities. And in the first place I went, I said to the woman, uh, how do you feel about the girls not being able to go to high school? Uh, Because, you know, they can go to elementary school and they can go to college. They can't go to high school. And she looked at me with this blank stare And she said, we don't even send our boys to high school. We can't afford a a notebook and a a pen. We have to send our kids out to beg on the street. And the reality is that uh, the economic situation is so bad that most people were not sending their uh, girls to school beyond the sixth grade anyway. But in any case, you need a professional 
sector of society. You need an educated sector of society. And those people right now are trying to leave the country because they don't see the future in Afghanistan. So I think the decision uh, is going to be changed. It's just the longer it takes, uh, the more distraught people are. Is there a role for women in government there under the Taliban? There's no women in any significant positions in government. That was one of the issues that the international community was saying, uh, is that you have to respect women's rights, let them go to school, allow them to participate in government, and name some women to uh, cabinet positions. Right. There's not even a deputy minister in cabinet positions. And it's uh, spotty how women are treated in the workplace. In some places, they've been allowed to stay And in other places, including in government offices, they've been told to go home. So, uh, you know, it's not just the issue of education. It's the right to work. It's the right to travel independently, because while we were there, they put out an edict saying that women couldn't travel internationally without a male guardian, and that within the country, they could only go for uh, 75 kilometers uh, without a male guardian. Uh, They put out other edicts about how people should be dressed, including men working in uh, the government offices, should grow their beards, all kinds of things that people are very upset about and said that these are you know, issues that the Taliban should not be making rules about. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we don't think that the international community should be conditioning uh, humanitarian aid or the unfreezing of the funds on on these issues, because that only victimizes the people twice. That's right. I went to Afghanistan once as a private citizen back in 2008. And one of the things that really um, struck me at the time was the level of discrimination against Afghanistan's Shia Muslims. I saw one Shia man being beaten in the street and remind, I'll remind you, this is during, you know, the U.S. occupation, the, the, the so-called democratic uh, administration of um, Hamid Karzai. He was being beaten in the street because his beard wasn't long enough. And they said that only Shias trim their beards. And if they're Shias, they deserve a beating. I, I've always feared that were the Taliban to come back, that this would this would get even worse for them. Another thing that that I learned at the time that I didn't know was that Shia Muslims are not allowed to own weapons. Uh, they, uh, you have to be a Sunni Muslim to own a weapon. And so, so many Shia families have had their children trained in martial arts because it's the only way that they can defend themselves. Do you see any of that changing for the better? Is there any way? One of the other conditions of the international community is that it should be an inclusive government. That means the Hazaras, uh, the ethnic minorities should be included. And the Taliban haven't done that at all. I think they feel like uh, they won the war. They were fighting not only the West, but others. And uh, they should deserve the fruits of that victory. Uh, It's a very short-sighted policy to have because you have to bring the population along. And right now, the people are just exhausted from over 40 years of there isn't much of an insurgency. But if this goes on, they're going to feel obligated uh, to take up weapons against the Taliban. And that would just really be a terrible. Oh, boy. So I, I go back to this issue of saying that 
there's got to be pressure on the Taliban from all sides. You know, there's a lot of Muslim communities that have been putting pressure on the Taliban, like the Indonesians and the Malaysians and uh, others who have a um, much more uh, liberal uh, version of Islam where women are highly respected. Uh, Women have been presidents a long time ago, uh, including in Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world. So, uh, yes, there has to be continued pressure on the Taliban to open up to the ethnic minorities. Medea, you posted a wonderful video on uh, Facebook when you were in Afghanistan, and and you and uh, your your colleagues and friends were dancing. Uh, what's the attitude now toward dancing in uh, in Afghanistan? Before the the U.S. Uh, occupation of the country, that was a punishable crime. Have have the Taliban at least become a little bit more uh, tolerant, a little bit more liberal on things like music and dancing? Again, when we say the Taliban, we have to remember they're divided. There's a generational divide. There's an urban-rural divide. Good point. So the conservative ones still say the same thing. Music and dancing should be prohibited. But people now are not willing to uh, go along with these. So in the first uh, girls, uh, it wasn't a school. It was an NGO uh, that was working with young women. And uh, our first visit there... Uh, they had a song, and they uh, uh, had changed the words to a Bruno Mars song, and it was all about how they were determined to get an education. And they sang it to us, and they certainly weren't afraid. They knew we were uh, videoing it. We had a professional videographer with us, uh, and we met a lot of women who said, you know, we're just not going to listen to them. We were, uh, these women uh, were babies, uh, if, if that, when the Taliban were in power the last time. Uh, But they are much more determined. We see that there are young women who've gone out on the streets to protest. We see that uh, in our press conference, we had two rows that were women journalists. And something that shocked me was that uh, one of the women got up and there were uh, members of the Taliban sitting in the audience right up in the front. And this woman journalist challenged him right there and said to us, how can you unfreeze the money and trust the Taliban that they will use it right when they lie to us all the time? Ooh. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And she didn't run out afterwards. She stayed till the very end talking to us. She sends me videos all the time of all kinds of things going on in Afghanistan. I mean, these women are strong and courageous, and they're determined to get their rights. Wow, that's dramatic. I want to ask you also about um, poverty in Afghanistan. The country used to be a net food exporter, and it supplied Pakistan into the 1970s with most of that country's rice and grain. That's not the case anymore, of course. Before the U.S. invasion, the Taliban forbade the cultivation of heroin poppy. But once the U.S. began its occupation of Afghanistan, it became the the supplier of 93% of the world's heroin. Is that continuing now, or will the Taliban demand a return to food production? Uh, Do you foresee a a point where Afghanistan will be able to feed its people? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because I'm totally obsessed with this issue. Uh, The Taliban came out last week and said that growing poppy was prohibited, and that they would destroy the crops, and they would deal with the uh, the uh, uh, farmers who didn't listen, according to Sharia law, which is quite scary because you don't know what they mean by that. <laughs> that they have outlawed it uh, is really, I think, a very good thing because that 
poppy is used for opium that has destroyed the lives of so many people in Afghanistan and neighboring Iran. And of course, that's uh, what what makes its way to Europe. And um, and the Taliban, when they made the announcement, actually put a call out to the international community and said, we want your help in finding alternatives for these farmers and in treating the addicts. And I don't know that I've heard them say ever, we want your help. So I thought that was very uh, important and that the international community should really find this is a place where they can actually work with the Taliban. Uh, And the U.S. during its 20 years said that it was going to eradicate poppy production. And we, the U.S. taxpayers, spent billions of dollars on these ridiculous botched efforts that got nowhere, in fact, uh, only led to increased production. So I think this is an opportunity that the global community, the, the World Bank, the other international organizations should really take advantage of. Fantastic. What else is Code Pink up to these days? I know you've been busy. Well, normally, yeah, you're always busy. Uh, you're fighting for justice in places like Cuba and Venezuela and Iraq, Iran, all over the world. What else are you focused on right now? <laughs> well, uh, we're focused on a lot of countries that are under U.S. sanctions because we feel that it is a kind of a collective punishment against the population. And so in the case of Cuba, for example, we've been raising funds to send food, uh, including powdered milk, to the pediatric hospitals. We have another uh, shipment that's on its way to a warehouse in Miami, and we'll be taking that by a chartered plane very soon. Uh, we're bringing some Venezuelans up uh, to the U.S. to do a tour to talk to people about how those sanctions are hurting the ordinary Venezuelan people. And this, uh, uh, actually on, on uh, Friday, we have two wonderful guests from Iran who we are bringing here. One is the most famous actor wow. in Iran, uh, Parviz Parstui, who is a fabulous, fabulous actor. And the other is a young woman documentary filmmaker. And we are setting up events for them in D.C. and New York and then on the West Coast uh, to try to have some more uh, exchanges around culture. And, of course, the Iran nuclear deal has still not been signed. uh, So we'll be getting people to advocate for that. And then we're working on the Ukraine issue and calling for ceasefire and negotiations. We just had a wonderful online international rally over the weekend where we had thousands of people listening to our uh, uh, rally that had uh, members of parliament from various countries in Europe, as well as uh, well-known intellectuals from Noam Chomsky to uh, the Greek Yanis Varoufakis or uh, the uh, UK Pakistani Tariq Ali. So it was really wonderful. And we're calling on people to get out and mobilize calling for a ceasefire in negotiations for uh, March uh, 7th, which is a um, uh, a day of global action. And when I know, I mean May, May, sorry. And I, I want to tell people, too, if you're interested, check out the website. It's very easy. It's just codepink.org, and you can sign up for all these different uh, events and issues and campaigns and take a look at the calendar there. Medea Benjamin, thank you for joining us. Medea is an anti-war and anti-torture activist and the co-founder of the peace group Code Pink. You're listening to Political Misfits. We'll take a final break and then we'll come back. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we have a few last stories to tell you about. One of them is, you know, I was going to say unimportant, but that's not necessarily true. But I don't know if you have seen uh, these news, the ratings of uh, CNN Plus. The no. number of users that you it's know, getting? I said the other day, and I think I said it on the air. I don't think I said it to a friend of mine, but I don't even know where you find this CNN Plus, let alone would I want to pay money to, to watch it. Doesn't seem like a lot of people either are interested in finding it or have been able to find it. Fewer than 10,000 people are using CNN Plus on a daily basis. Fewer than 10,000 people? Two weeks into its existence. So, yeah, that's um, shocking. Did you know that that Al Jazeera um, English is only on in like three cities in America on cable and they have thirty five thousand a day? People like Al, Al Jazeera is great. I love <clears throat> yeah. it. Yeah. They've seen it plus five ninety nine a month or sixty dollars a year. Again, like why would you want this st- streaming service that you have to pay for when you can also just watch CNN? Anyway. Uh, CNN spokesperson said they continue to be happy with the launch and its progress. Uh, Crystal Ball of the she was on the rising. Now they're not on the rising anymore. They have their own show. Oh, but anyway, I, journalist I, Crystal I Ball was re- that. Um, commenting that they reportedly CNN reportedly spent two hundred fifty million dollars to launch this. Uh, Warner Warner Media, I guess, spent spent that money. So wow. I mean, it could be. Look, we could say that all the years of. Uh, you know, body language experts and trying to suggest that Bernie Sanders is an anti-Semite and, right. you know, the rest has come back to bite them. Who knows? It could just also be that nobody's got any money. Nobody no. wants to pay $6 for CNN. That doesn't make any kind of sense at all. And maybe they don't have any money because, weren't you talking about Rachel Maddow shows now coming back, but uh, weekly? It's going to be much, weekly. Yeah, Monday nights at 9 o'clock. for that one night a week show. Imagine. Millions upon millions. I think, I think, her latest contract is 30 million a year is, is what we reported. Um, and that's supposed to include like, she's going to be executive producer on documentaries and she's going to die. Who knows what she does for $30 million like a year, $700,000 a week. Ridiculous. All right. Just ridiculous. Yeah. So that caught my eye. And in more sort of price news, um, airline, like airfares yeah. have shot up, which yes. is depressing, right? Just when you're sort of thinking like, oh, wait, life feels a little bit more normal. Maybe I should plan an actual, you know, vacation somewhere. Right. Uh, they were 20 percent higher than pre-pandemic levels in March. And this is, you know, being attributed to inflation, inflation hitting vacations. <laughs> it's terrible. But like that's, you know, that's depressing that like just almost as soon as things open up, they're uh priced out of the reach of even more people. There's kind of a fun story on rawstory.com mm-hmm. talking about Herschel Walker, who uh, we discussed favorite, many times. I, I'm just so, I'm having so much fun mm-hmm. with this Herschel Walker for Senate candidacy. And they're saying that um, he he's just so in over his head, he doesn't know what to do. And so he skipped the first Republican debate. He just never showed up for it. And they're saying that that what's the most damaging is not these these accusations of of spousal abuse and mental illness and all this stuff, run-ins with the cops. It's that he just simply has zero grasp of the issues and that he's faking it when he gives interviews. 
So it turns out that a couple of days ago, he was on Maria Bartiromo's show on Fox News. And she asked him a question about U.S. energy independence. And his response was, and I quote, one of the first things they did, one of the first things those Biden people did is they decided they're going to give away our energy. By him going out and giving away our energy, now we're not energy independent, which started the whole downfall, unquote. No. Yeah. So uh, MSNBC uh, ran this clip and said that, you know, he delivered this meandering response that was detached from reality and from syntax and that Republicans have realized this guy is going to be a big problem for them. And so I mentioned on the sh- on our show on on Friday, they've budgeted two million dollars for ads in Georgia to defeat their own candidate. How crazy is this? Yeah. And they're looking for people who might have a, a fighting chance in November against Raphael Warnock. I mean, if only if only we could uh, see this kind of effort mobilized against Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> or Madison Cawthorn or the rest of them. Well, and may I may I throw that into Marjorie Taylor Greene just in the last hour said that um, that Congress needs to repeal all gun laws so that subway riders can arm themselves and we won't have these random shootings. No, that'll be really great. I'll be very excited to see people shooting each other in the subway. That's a great, (laughs) that's a great solution. I wanted to make sure uh, we, we mentioned this story of police officers using Disney songs to cover up their crimes, but I just wanted to make sure it was clear in case you didn't hear it. But do you hear the story? It comes from California. It's these officers. Oh yeah. uh, They are looking in like investigating a parked car or something, um, but they start blasting, songs from Encanto and some other other Disney movies because the idea is that they won't be able to be played on YouTube. Uh, they'll be taken down for copyright yes. infringement. So just yes. a really great way to like try to hide your actions yeah. from the With members cowards. of the community that you're supposed to be serving from. Do- yeah, I know. And Other it was cowards. late at night. The people came out and said, what is going on? There are children here who need to sleep. Like, why are you yourself creating a noise complaint? Yeah. Yes. Nonsense. I was tickled by this uh, Politico story about a, a mouse infestation in the FDA. I saw that. Did you see that? It was pretty crazy. I mean, who knows <laughs> if this is just a sort of goofy story that's been exaggerated. Uh, there's a great, uh, very, very uh, even-tempered quote here. It is accurate that food products left behind in offices when maximum telework was implemented is a, cre- a contributing factor to offices with pest control issues. Uh, but they are not saying that was according to an FDA spokesperson. They are not saying that staff uh, cannot enter some buildings and that they haven't reopened some buildings because the, the mice problem is so bad. Right. But, you, know. you know, when I was at the CIA, I went to the Pentagon once for a meeting and um, the guy I was meeting with shared an office with an army captain. And he had one of those uh, uh, cup of noodles that he was going to make for lunch. So he opens up his drawer of his desk. He pulls out the cup of noodles. He sets it on the desk. He goes to the men's room to wash his hands. He comes back and there's a rat on the desk. It had eaten through the styrofoam and it was eating his cup of noodles. Uh, 
it's terrible. My sister and her best friend once uh, almost got really mad at each other because for weeks they thought that the other was stealing their candy. Like they had a little bowl of Hershey's Kisses out. Uh-oh. And uh, one would come into the, the kitchen and notice that the candy was pretty seriously depleted and be like, oh, you know, this is like yeah. back in college when everybody's poor. And they would think, oh, okay, she's eating all the Hershey's Kisses and not replacing them. And of course, the other would come in. Uh, they only found later that they had a like stereo setup that had a weird little uh, plastic like pocket in it. Mm-hmm. And they went to move it. And like a hundred little wrappers fell out because mice had been grabbing the Hershey's Kisses, dragging them into the safety of this little radio uh, plastic <laughs> cave and eating them there. And meanwhile, the two of them had been thinking, greedy. <laughs> Not replenishing the candy dish. That's not, that's not right. Yeah. I thought that was great. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have here? I thought this was a, uh, uh, Japan apparently has removed the neo-Nazi designation of the Azov battalion. This is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that's this reported convenient. in a bunch of different um, places. None of them particularly big, uh, but you know, the, the U S has been putting pressure on East Asian allies uh, to stand with them against against China because of China's support for Russia. And this would seem to be, you know, one of those that was quietly happened with the um, East Turkestan independence movement uh, during the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It it had been designated a a terrorist group. group. And then it seemed like because China was saying, yeah, look, these are these are terrorists active in China, you know. Then, yes. of course, politically, we decided, oh, no, they're probably probably they're freedom fighters now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's all we have time for today. I want to say thanks to all of our guests and our engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 